We are in the middle of a series, Kings, and this is the third part. And so if you're new here, uh, if you want to pop onto our website, odcc.org, you can listen to part one and two um, as well. Uh, And we're just kind of tracking through the stories of the kings of Israel. And uh, we are in... Uh, part three, we're talking mainly about uh, King Saul, who's the first king of Israel, and King David, who is the second king, obviously, of Israel. And they are both anointed king at the same time. You remember from last week that uh, Saul has driven David out, and David is now on the run. Um, and that is what we get there at the beginning of Samuel um, chapter 22. In chapter 21, we read about how he fled down uh, to a place called Nob, was a city of priests, and he, was, uh, he lied to them about what he was doing there, and they uh, supplied him, gave him resupplies. And then he fled down here to Gath, uh, where he stayed for a short period of time. We read about that at the end of chapter 21. And then into 22, where we're reading today, he's going to flee up to Adullam. So that's where we begin chapter 22. David, the king, on the run from the mad king, Saul. He's gone nuts and is trying to kill him. In verse 1 of chapter 22, we read that David departed from there, that is from Gath, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. That's a whole kind of region. It's not just, there's a city there too, but there's around the surrounding regions where there was a place for him to hide out. And we read in that verse that his mother and his, his brothers and his father come there because not only is Saul looking to kill David, but he is looking to kill David's whole family, right? Again, he's the mad king. And so that's what he is up to. So they've all gathered there as a place of hiding, a place of safety. But we read in verse 2 that other people show up as well. Uh, Verse 2, and everyone who was in distress, this word in Hebrew means something like um, distressed or hard-pressed. Your Bible, if you're using a different version, might say hard-pressed. It also can mean something like outlaw. And that's what I think actually fits here best, outlaws. David, again, all right. David, our our gunslinger here, is gathering together his outlaws. Everyone who was in debt, we read, so they have trouble with money. They're on the run from their debtors. Uh, Maybe they've lost their land. And everyone who is bitter in soul. That's a literal translation. And so we have to interpret that. What does bitter in soul mean? And I think the most obvious uh, interpretation is to think of this as people who are disappointed, who are upset, who uh, don't fit in with society, who are outcasts, who don't especially like maybe even Saul in his reign. And all of these people gather together here at Adullam, gather together, and and he, that is David, became a commander over them, and there were about 400 people. So David has gathered together his posse of some pretty bad dudes. Like these guys, they, they, can, they can make trouble and they can solve problems. And there's 400 guys that are, are, are ready to rock and roll. And that's what David has got now. That's a big group. From there we read in verses 3 and 4 that he's going to flee through here up around into Moab. because so this is a completely different country. Outside of the, uh, the scope of Saul being able to kill him or to do anything to him or to his family. So they fled now to another, another country and he speaks to the king there and he asks the king to keep his father and his mother, to keep that family safe. Notice what he says there in verse 3. David goes to Mizbah of Moab. 
Says the king, please let my father and mother stay with you, right, so they'll be safe. And underline this in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you can underline it there too. He says this, till I know what God will do for me. Do you hear that faith? Do you hear that faith? Till I know what God will do for me. Why is David on the run right now? Because of Saul, of course, but he's the anointed king. God is allowing Saul to drive David from his family's house, drive his whole family out of Israel and into hiding in Moab, of all places. Ugh, Moab's like New Jersey. Like, you, like it's, it's a terrible place. And you don't, or Ohio, right? It's like driving through. You don't want to go to Moab. I hope no one is here from New Jersey or Ohio. Otherwise, you know, ignore me. Uh, God is allowing that to happen, and yet in this moment of trial, what does he say? He says, I am still going to seek God. I still want to know what the Lord will do. And notice the second part of that faith. Does he have any doubt there in that line? Is there any doubt in that sentence that God will do something for him? Any doubt there? No, he says, what God will underline or circle box it make that visible so the next time you open up your bible you see that what god will do for me not might do not maybe will do sometimes we say prayer in, in the churches i i grew up they would they would say this prayer we would be praying for sister so-and-so brother so-and-so sick having a hard time family trouble we would say if it be what a wonderful way to hedge our bets against God not answering our prayers, isn't it? Right? God might not do something here, and so we just give God a little escape hatch in case he, he doesn't act. David doesn't have any doubt there. God's going to do, I don't know what God's going to do. I don't know what God's next step is for me. David doesn't pretend to have any clue about what God is going to do next, but he is certain that God is acting and moving in his life. And y'all who have the Holy Spirit in you, how much more confidence should you have? That God will act, that God will do, that God will move in your lives, in your problems, in your difficulties. We have more confidence than anyone should have ever had in the history of time because of Jesus, because of the Spirit. In fact, Jesus says in Mark chapter 11, verse 24, therefore I tell you whatever, did I make a slide? I don't, did I make a slide? I didn't make a slide, don't worry about it. Mark 11, write it down. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. That is a great, great line of confidence. And please, don't let this get be twisted by people who say you can start praying to God and he'll rain down BMWs, right? This is not, don't be children about this. We have a lot of people who are running around writing books and publishing sermons and, and on TV who are saying, well, look at, right there it is. Pray whatever you want and it'll be yours. No, this is not talking about checks in the mail. This is talking about David who is acting according to God's will. He is on God's mission, and he believes, he knows, he's convinced that God will see that mission through, even though he doesn't know how God will do it. And Jesus says, you have that same confidence. If you are moving in faith, if you're acting according to the mission, God will see you through, have confidence. Not just, and, and so I'm not just suggesting we should take on his attitude. I'm suggesting we should do more than that. We should take the next step, and we should take on his words. We should mimic his language, because speaking with confidence gives us confidence. 
Gives those around us an opportunity to see God's confidence in you. And when God works in your life, you can say to those around you who probably maybe don't know Jesus, you can say, look, I told you God would act. And I didn't think he would act like this, but he did. He moved. He changed the situation. And now I can give glory to him. And you can see it for yourself in your own life. Notice that God answers. Verse 5. God answers David's certainty. The prophet Gad, he shows up and then disappears. He's gone. He says to David, do not remain in the stronghold, so here in Moab, but depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departs and he went forth to the forest of Hereth, which is sort of like probably in here, that area near Bethlehem, which is, of course, his hometown, if you remember. If David fled and came back, where do you think Saul would look for him? Probably in his hometown, right? You go to places you know. David then, what does he do? He goes right to the heart of where Saul, he goes right back to the heart of danger. No doubt he would have been afraid. No doubt he would have had um, some worries there. But I want you to notice here that David's faith has teeth. It has teeth. It does something. He doesn't wait, doesn't hesitate. God says, listen, God says you need to go back into Israel. And David starts packing his bags. There is a powerful faith there that doesn't just believe, that doesn't just speak, but it acts. And I wonder, I wonder if our prayers might be hindered in producing what we hope they will produce Because not only do we pray without confidence, but God knows when he gives, we're still not going to act. Are we still on mission? What do you exist to do? Why has God saved you? Why has he applied the blood of Jesus to wash away your sins? Why has he filled you with the Holy Spirit? Why has he called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Why has he transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son? Why has he done that? And are you pursuing it with such ferocity that someone can look back on your life and say that man or that woman had faith and their faith had teeth? There's something to it. Because that's what we see here with David and man. When I'm pushing up daisies, and I'm pretty sure that'll happen, that's what I want people to look back and say about me. What about Saul? What about mad King Saul? Different picture altogether. Look at verse 6. Different picture altogether. Verses 6 through through 19 tell the story of what Saul does around this same time. Verse 6. Now Saul heard... That David was discovered, and the men who were with him, so, you know, there's some whispers like Robin Hood and Sherwood Forest, right? They, hey, you know, there's David's back, and he's gathered his band of merry men. Saul is sitting at Gibeah under a tamarisk tree on the heights with his spear in his hand. Stop giving this guy spears. And all of his servants, who are the bravest people, if you missed the spear thing, this is part two, he's trying to kill people with spears all the time. His servants are so brave because they're willing to stand about him. Maybe it's standing behind him, so he can you know, step forward. Anyway, 
And Saul says to his servants, and I think that this is probably not a great translation in verse 7. He, he says to the servants who stood about him, I, I think more like Saul rages at his servants. He is, after all, the mad king. He's gone crazy, and he's raging. He's raging. Here now, people of Benjamin, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders over thousands and commanders over hundreds? Will he give you promotion that all of you would conspire against me? No one discloses to me when, the son of Je- the, when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me and discloses to me that he has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait to this day. Notice that. Notice the way that he speaks here in this text. Notice that he speaks directly to whom? What's the name given there? It's a tribe. What is it? Benjamin. Now remember with me that Israel is broken up into 12. You might think of them like states. We've got states. And they're broken up into 12 tribes. And 11 of those tribes have territory. And here's a territory. This is Benjamin here. This is the territory that belongs to Saul's family. This is, this is their, not just Saul himself, but all of the Benjaminites. This is an important detail, but I think one that is, we might miss. The story throughout this story shows that there is an honor given to Saul, he is able to call together more people than just Benjamin. But you notice here that he speaks only to the people of Benjamin. And yet he is supposed to be the king of all of Israel, right? All of Israel is to look at him and say, this is our king. He is looking out for our best interests. He is interested, his, his picture, his vision is larger than just this one little tribe, his one little area, his one little family. It's all of the families and all of the peoples and Yet, and yet his vision is small, it's narrow, it's selfish. He is only focusing on Saul and what Saul, need, Saul needs. Are, are you, is David going to give you guys promotions? Is he going to give you land? Is he going to give you things? Because what's the implicit there? I might, right? I will. This is small-mindedness. And churches and Christians can get sucked up into this same way of thinking. What Saul is doing here is not all that different than us. We just don't have spears, I hope, here today. What do we exist to do? Do we exist to build empires, to grow bank accounts, to grow businesses? What do we exist to do? To climb the corporate ladder? What do we exist to do? Have lots of children? What do we exist to do because I'm pretty sure that we exist to preach the gospel to Portage and to see that God is worshipped here and that the 27,000 people roughly out there in Portage who do not claim Jesus Christ as Lord, that's about right, 27,000 what we call nuns these days, they don't have any religious affiliation, 27,000 people who live in Portage hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we exist to do personally, and as a body, to declare the glories of God and to make sure that his name is known. 
But what is Saul, whose mission is to make sure the glory of God is declared throughout Israel and to make sure that Israel is protected so that they can continue to declare that to the nations? What is he focused on? His own needs, his own desires, his own tribe, himself. How might we be sucked into that? Well, church is for me. What am I getting out of it? Not what am I putting into it, not how am I serving my brothers and sisters, not making sure that worship, but, but how am I receiving? We lose sight as a church of our vision to share Jesus, right? That's what we exist to do, to share Jesus. How are we getting that done? Is that burning passion, is that passion for those 27,000 people, is that a passion for you? In your heart, in your mind, in your life, What does Saul do here when he doesn't get his way, when things are sideways, when things aren't happening? What does he do? Blames everybody else around him. How many of you all do that? Because I do that all the time. We do that, don't we? Something goes wrong and it's somebody else's fault. Something goes wrong and somebody else is to blame. That is a failure on Saul, not on the people around him. It is because Saul has lost vision of his calling. He has lost who he is. And because he has lost who he is supposed to be in God, everything else around him is falling apart. In fact, what comes of Saul's focusing on himself? Anything good? No. Things just get worse and worse and worse for Saul as he becomes more and more inwardly focused, more and more bitter, more and more suspicious, more and more angry. Man, these things will eat you alive. But if you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, well, something different could come altogether. And that's what we need to do. We need to look at David and not at Saul fixing our eyes on the goal of faith to make sure that the worship of God is happening in our lives and around us. Verse 9 is important, and this sort of harkens back to what we saw last week. Last week, as as David was there at Nob speaking with the priest, there was a, a shepherd from Edom, and Edom is right here. And his name is Doug. You can't trust a Doug. Any Dugs in here? Huh? Huh? Yeah, Doug. Dougie. What does Doug do? He speaks up and he says, I saw, whispering into the ear of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Atub, and he inquired of the Lord for him. Gave him provisions, gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, Doug. And Saul, (laughs) Doug's a great guy, by the way. (laughs) This one not, this one is. Uh, Saul does predictably what we would expect Saul to do. Saul calls Ahimelech, um, who is, of course, innocent, calls him in and, and Asks him, why did you betray me? Why did you betray me? And Ahimelech says, I don't know what you're talking about. Like David is your general. Like he's your right-hand man. And he shows him and he says, I'm on a mission for you. Why would I not believe him? Like why would I doubt that? Of course, I, I, I would never betray you. I don't know, and he puts it this way, I don't know a little bit or anything at all. Like I don't even know the smallest thing. I don't know nothing. And what does Saul do, do you think? 
verse 16. You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Now this is forbidden in the scriptures. You might remember the, the line eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You've heard this before. This is out of Leviticus 24. And, and we today would sort of think that sounds really brutal. Like if, because we tend not to, to use physical violence in, in, in justice um, in the same way that they did. But eye for eye, tooth for tooth is a very good law if you live in a day and age when somebody who is wealthy or somebody who has more power or king can say, I don't like what you did. You committed a crime uh, uh, Matt, and so I'm going to kill your entire family, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth means what? Matt committed a crime, Matt is punished for that crime, and the family is left alone. So that, 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 in that sense, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth is a, is a very merciful law. It is a good law. It puts the king himself underneath the law of the Lord. And uh, if you remember with me, the first five books of the Old Testament are what we call the law. They give detailed description on how everyone who lives in Israel is to live their life if they are going to be God's people. They are a Torah-formed, a law-formed people so that they might um, uh, live righteously and God won't have to bring judgment on them because God judges the unrighteous and he wants his people to be righteous. And so what do we see here? We see Saul saying, I am above the law of God. I don't care what the law says. I will kill you and your whole family. Because power will always assume more power. I laugh every time I hear about a new executive order. Obama came in and starts signing executive orders, and Trump comes in, and what does he do? Signs away those executive orders and signs his own executive orders, and whoever comes in after him will do the same thing because that's not the way the government's supposed to work. This is an invention, it was not the intention of the founders, much like we see the Supreme Court, which is not designed to legislate morality for a country, but rather to interpret the laws that exist. But now we look to the Supreme Court to make a decision for the law for everyone. That is a usurpation of what was envisioned by the founders. But what does power do? Power always seeks more power. It grows, it claws, it wants more. And God warned his people. Remember, all the way back in in Kings part one, when he was speaking through Samuel the prophet, and the people are all saying, we don't want God as our king, we want a human king like everyone else. And Samuel says, you idiots. That's a direct translation. (laughs) You idiots. Don't you know what kings do? Kings tax. Kings demand. Kings conscript. Kings will take your daughters for his his maidservants. He will take your sons for his armies. He will take your land for his generals. He will take your wealth to fund his building projects. He will take all of these things. And there's a really scary line. I think I put that one up. Yes, 1 Samuel 18. This is the end of all of that diatribe. As Samuel's warning them, don't, this is what it means to, to reject God as your king and to take a human king. This is what happens. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer. That's a scary line, isn't it? There's no more recourse. I mean, if you, I mean, if you can't call out to God to help you, there, there's nothing left for you to do. Because they have made a choice, and that choice, it can't be undone. 
There are things that happen in our lives that God will work through, that God will fix for us, that God will solve. But there are times where we will make choices in our lives and God you are, isn't going to fix that. You have to live with the natural consequences of that action, which is where I get to become that old-timey preacher and say, read your Bibles. Please don't let this be the only time this week that you cracked open the Scriptures because the Scriptures give us insight into what God wants from us not just because he demands it as a holy righteous god but because he loves you and knows the ways in which you can set your life askew and ruin it ruin a marriage ruin a child ruin a job ruin a church because you didn't pour through the scriptures and allow it not only to command you, but to shape you. The more we spend time with the Bible, the more we begin to see through the lenses like glasses to see the way that God sees. To see people the way God sees. To see situations and problems the way that God sees. So that we can make the right decisions. So this is never true of your life and never true of my life. Because I don't ever want this to be true of my life. And if... I don't want this to be true of my life. It will take, dirty word, are you ready? Four letters. Effort. It's not four letters, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> Effort. If you want to stay on a straight and narrow path, when there is a broad and easy road, that's going to take effort. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take discipleship. It's going to take commitment from you. It's going to take the kind of faith that has teeth. The kind of faith of David that says, I'll go back into the fire if that's what you want. I, that, that Though You Slay Me song has got mixed reviews from all y'all. I love that song. And I said, Paul, let's do that song. And, and Paul said, okay. <laughs> and so that's why we've done that. I love that song. I love it. Because that's the kind of faith that I want. It might make you uncomfortable. That's the kind of faith that I want. That whatever God puts me through, even if it's a cross, I will go. In the garden, I would be willing to pray the same prayer that Jesus prayed. On the cross, I would be willing to forgive the way Jesus forgave because I believe in God. And I believe in the resurrection. And I believe in these things. This isn't just platitudes. This is just ideas. This is truth. And it is truth that you can bank on and you can count on. A God that you can trust in. Even when it seems like everything else has fallen apart around you. You can trust him because he will do for you. Even if ultimately the end is resurrection. And that's the greatest end we can hope for anyway. Everything else is passing away. What isn't passing away? What are you going to bank on here? It's all passing away. Put your trust in something that has eternity in its view. Something that you can actually hope in and count on. Saul turns to the priests, turns to his men there in verse 16. Of course, he says that I'm going to kill all of you. In verse 17, he turns to his guard. That's the people around him. And he says to them, turn and kill all of the priests of the Lord because their hand is with David. And I love this. The guards refuse to do it. They refuse to commit the, the murder of these priests. And so what does Saul do? Looks at Doug. Doug. Says, Doug, kill those priests. And of course, Doug, he does it. Verses 18 and 19 tell a horrific story. A horrific story 
turned and striked the priest, and Doug the Edomite turned and he struck the priest. He killed 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. That's a fancy way of saying priests. And Nob, the whole city, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. He killed absolutely everyone in that city, everyone in that righteous place. And I want to scream at those guards. Like we want to look at them and say, well, it's brave of you not to follow the king's order, but it was cowardly of you not to intervene. The way that the wording is put here, it sounds as though there's this, it's all in singular. Doug is the only, he's walking from person to person. One guy is doing all of this evil, and there's all of these people standing around doing what? Nothing. The power of power. The social contract. I don't want to be the one to step out on the limb. And because I might become the target next. But I bet you if one of them had broken that ice, many more would have followed. In fact, we know this is true. Remember the old Billy Graham crusades? Anybody remember those? They're on TV now still sometimes. You can catch them. It's old crusades. Tens of thousands of people and these. And Billy Graham's up there and he's preaching. And he's, so he's super famous at this point, you know. And everybody's like, oh, it's Billy Graham. Oh. You know, and he's, and he's preaching, and he, he wraps up his sermon, he gives this altar call, you know, come down front if you need Jesus, and there's kind of nothing happens for a minute or two, and you end up, you know, we're playing, now we're in verse two of Amazing Grace or whatever, you know, one person comes down, then maybe two, and then all of a sudden there's a flood of folks that come down. They planted those first couple people. That's what they did in their evangelism uh, crusades. The people didn't need Jesus, they didn't come to God, but they planted them, so that they would come forward, because if you're the first person to come forward, what do you feel like? Everybody's watching you, right? And they're judging you. If you guys come down today, we're going to judge you so hard. I'm just kidding. We won't. We won't. Absolutely will not. But that's, it feels awkward to be the person that breaks that ice. And so they had somebody come and break the ice for you, right? That's what they did. We, we see this all the time throughout society, just as human beings is what it is. And so when you're in a situation where you ought to be the icebreaker in the room, you're like, man, I don't want to be the target next. I don't want to be stick. I don't want to be publicly shamed for saying that's wrong. I don't want to be the person. I don't want to be, I don't want to be that person. But Christians are primed to be interveners. There's this great text, 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident that we are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. That is such an important line. I really want to know the answer to that question, Right? It's very black and white. I love John. He's black and white. Are you a child of God or are you a child of the devil? That's an important question. Everyone in this room, I hope, can answer that question today. And here's the criteria. Whoever practices righteousness or whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, brother here, I got to take a quick pause. Brother here does not mean your... um, your biological brother doesn't mean your neighbor. This is speaking directly of the church. And there are a lot of folks running around, and I hope I'm speaking to you, if this is you, running around saying, I love Jesus. He's great. I have this personal relationship with him. It's a wonderful thing, but I don't really have any use for the church. Uh, maybe you should rethink that because God has a whole lot of use for the church. That's another sermon. I won't do that one. Righteousness here has twofold meaning. We've talked about this before, and I'm, I'm sorry if this is old hat for you, but righteousness has a twofold meaning. It means moral purity, and it also means justice, right? We say truth and justice. 
the one who does not practice truth or justice should not be looked upon as a child of God, will not be looked upon by God as a child of God. And we as Christians should be the people who have the courage to break the ice. That if we see truth and injustice happen, or truth, falsehood and injustice happening, we're the people who are willing to stand up who have the faith that has teeth, that says, no, that's wrong. That's false. That's not true. And I care about you enough to say, not like, not like a jerk, not like, you know, not like a Doug, but like a Jesus who is full of truth and full of grace. Who does not impose his will on you. Who doesn't say, well, you're going to believe me or else. Who doesn't start shouting and screaming. Who doesn't start condemning, but simply says, this is the truth from God. And you are invited, you are invited to that grace. You're invited to receive it. That's an important, that's an important point, I think. We notice here in verse 19 what Saul does. Saul, in verse 19, executes everyone. This is called chrem. God would command in certain instances for God's people to go and to do, to commit harem, to, to kill everything, to, to raise this. If the city was so wicked, God would use his people to execute justice. And God, if you remember back in chapter 15, called Saul to execute justice upon the very wicked Ammonites. He called them to do exactly this, but to the Ammonites. And instead of following that, Saul took the plunder, and he took the king, and who else knows what else it was taken there, So Saul has rejected the word of God in in chapter 15, and instead he has gone to the other extreme, and now he has done the exact thing that God commanded him to do the wicked, he has done to the righteous. Think about that slide for a second. How far do you have to sink to get to the place where you say, to Doug, kill all those priests and all of those women and all those children, even though they are innocent and they are godly. They are my brothers. They were his brothers and sisters. They were fellow Israelites. Kill them. Because I want you to see, if nothing else here, in Saul's life, as we continue on through the life of Saul, this slippery slope that Saul has begun on. Because it didn't begin with him massacring his city. It began with a very simple and almost innocuous sin. Do you remember what it was from, from the first part of the series? Part one or part two? He was called to wait For seven days. And he disobeyed God. And he committed. He did the sacrifice the seventh day. Because he wouldn't wait. Impatience and disobedience were his first sins. But what is the truth of sin? The truth of sin is this. It starts small. But it will always, 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 always give birth to bigger sins. It will always give birth. I know you're sitting here thinking, well, that's not true of me, or that's not going to happen to me, or that's not, that's not, it will, it will, it will. All sin gives birth to larger sins, and that is why we ought to have a healthy fear of sin. There's this great line, I think I probably shared it before, but I'll do it again. Uh, In Jude chapter, well, there's just one chapter in Jude, Jude 22 and 23, have mercy on those who doubt. Churches don't do that very good. Do we? No, if you've got a doubt, we've got to shut you up with as many Bible verses as we can, as quickly as we can. That is bad news. Stop it. Doubts are a part of life. If you've been a Christian your whole life and you've never doubted, 
I, I, don't even, I don't even know what to say about that. Like, that's so outside of my experience. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Now, the fire could be sin, could be false teachers, could be temptation, could be anything that, that is going to drive that person away from God and into hell. Snatch them out of the fire. Show, uh, to others, show mercy mixed with fear. What's the fear? Hating even the garment stained by the flesh, stained by sin. Being afraid to touch the thing that has touched sin because you as a Christian take sin so seriously. You are so afraid of being separated from God for even a moment that while you are so concerned for the love of other people that you want to drag them out of sin, drag them out of death, bring them into faith in Jesus, but you're so afraid of the sin, you don't want to touch things that are wrong. That's a faith that has teeth. A faith that is on mission. A faith that has vision. But a faith that is also rooted in the fear of God to such an extent that we would be careful. Little hands what you do. And little eyes what you see. And little ears what you hear. And little mouth what you say. Things that we learned in kindergarten. But things we need to remember. And we sometimes forget So what do we do with all of this? There's all kinds of lessons that are sort of just pouring out of these texts. And if nothing else, I hope as we're running through these chapters, through these stories, you'll see that these stories and the Bible itself is neither boring nor meaningless. But in fact, it is full of car chases and shootouts. And it's awesome. And you should love it and read it because it's awesome. But you should also see God at work. God speaking, God acting, God moving in the way that only God can do and that you should take from it this immense faith that we should look at Saul as a, as a lesson in that slippery slope of sin. And we should look at David as a man who is deeply flawed. Can I get a witness? Deeply flawed, makes some huge mistakes, has moments of deep doubt, and yet has a faith with teeth. Do you notice that when, and we talked about this, but we, I just, I can't, I got to come back to again this, till, what is that? Till I know what God will do. Till I know what God will do. And when God speaks through the prophet God, or when God speaks to you through scriptures, or through a brother or sister in Christ, or maybe when you're praying, when God speaks, you don't doubt, you act, because God is moving. God is moving. God is moving and he's waiting for men and women of faith to stand up to reach out and to move forward in faith this morning if you are a person who is slidden back we're going to do the invitation we haven't seated anyone so I understand what we're asking from you but if you need prayer if you need help if you need somebody to talk to, if you have doubts that you need to get off your chest and share, if you need somebody to show you the way to Jesus, we have our elders down front. They are here and waiting to pray for you. Let's stand and say.